So we've been in this series, Whatever Happened to the Power of God, examining where did God go? What happened to Him? He disappeared. Why don't we see things happening today? The truth of the matter is, we see things happening today. You just may not hear about it. We lose sight of uh, the miracles of God because we're looking for the spectacular. And God moves all the time. There's always things going on. Miracles happening at all times in all places around the world. You hear stories right now. There are numerous stories of both Muslim and Jewish men having Jesus appear before them in visions and giving their lives to Christ. What do you do with that? We know that either one of them want nothing to do with Jesus, right? I've had somebody tell me, like, that's probably the devil doing that. You'd have to explain that one to me. I get it. Like, like if he showed up in an OU shirt, okay, fine, that's Satan. I get that. But, but it makes no sense. So you're hearing these stories. Miraculous healings that are taking place around the world. I mean, literally, stuff that you read out of the book of Acts. Blind eyes opening. People in wheelchairs their entire life, unable to walk. Getting up and walking for the first time. You know what you notice about it, though? Is they're never on TV selling books. Taking up offerings, telling you to send in $47.16. They're not doing that stuff. They're doing the work of the evangelist. That doesn't mean those guys aren't legit. I'm not trying to undermine that in any way. What I'm saying is is that there's stuff happening just because you don't hear about it. It happens all the time. All the time. So in your own life, God moves every single day. So what happened to the power of God? We begin to break down Scripture as we always do. Looking at it, we've looked at it from a natural standpoint, is where did God go? Well, we've looked at our denominations. We looked at our practice of worship. We've looked at our belief system and structures, our theologies that are so geared towards us instead of Him. That we've lost sight of. We've also got an understanding is that we just don't know our Bibles the way that we should. We don't understand Scripture. We began to break that down, and we began to look at all the things that God has done. And when we look at Scripture, we can see that it's very clear that God is all-powerful, all-knowing being who is out there interacting with His people and has a plan and has a purpose for everything. And everything is not accidental. It is not arbitrary. It all is structural and purposeful. The idea that God works in mysterious ways is a thought that came out not from God, it's come out, out out of denominations, come out of, well, we just don't know what God's going to do. We don't know how God's going to respond. And yet we still petition that God. I'm going to pray to God for whatever I'm looking for, and I don't know what He's going to do. Man, could you imagine if your children came to you and said, I'm hungry, legitimately hungry, not like I need a snack every 15 minutes hungry. But they've had nothing to eat and they came to you because they're hungry. Why are they petitioning you? Because they know that you will give them something, Right? See, there's an expectation that children have with their parents. There's an expectation that parents have with their children. And the children fail all the time. But when it comes to the things of God, there's an expectation that we put on Him that we give to God. God, I'm coming before you because I need you. You know what's funny, though, is the one expectation that we have of God that He won't send us to hell, quote-unquote, that we have no problem believing. No matter where we are, what we believe, what we think, what we think about God, whatever doctrine you might hold, whatever belief that might be popular right now, no problem. I'm getting in. You're getting in. You're a nice person. I like you. You're probably going to heaven. We have no problem with that one. But anything else? Boy, I don't know. I don't know what God's going to do. We never question whether somebody's going to get saved or be able to be saved. But yet we question whether God can move in their life in any other way. 
And the reason for that is because we don't know the Word. And because we don't know the Word, we have no idea what to expect of God. So thus, we create a God in our own image, and we worship that God. And we call Him God, and we call Him Jesus, and we call Him Yahweh. We were talking about this a little bit this morning. I don't know why we always end up doing this, but we often talk about what I'm going to talk about. It's Janice's fault. Um, I blame her in all things. There's been many a times where I just said, why don't you just preach today? You already preached my sermon, but whatever. And... But, you know, I've been looking into some of this New Age stuff because whether you know it or not, there's a big New Age movement in America. It's going on around the world, and it's even crept into the church. And so I've been researching this because I've been asked numerous questions on it. And there was a gal named Doreen Virtue who uh, was a big New Age. She was a Wiccan, um, big into tarot cards, well-known in that circle, gave her life to Christ. Okay? Didn't realize all the stuff that she was doing was wrong because she believed that she was a Christian. She read the Bible. She may have cherry-picked the verses, but she did read it. It was one of the spiritual books that enlightened her, and she was 100% convinced that she was right with God. Why would that be? Because she's created a God in her own image. And she recognizes that now and says that very thing. And good for her. Good for her. I mean, you're talking about a woman who was making a ton of money in this New Age world because she created her own tarot cards. She was writing books, going on speaking engagements, doing private reading. She was a medium. You know, she would, she would talk about how she could look into somebody's life and could tell them things about that individual specifically, which we know that as demonic, and she knows that now, but at the time she was 100% convinced that she was right. So if she can count on the power of the enemy, how come we can't count on the power of God? And the truth is we can and so every week we've dug a little deeper and a little deeper. We've been building this foundation brick by brick. And so we've been reading out of Psalm 103, verse 1, written by David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all His benefits. He forgives all your iniquities. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from destruction. He crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. He satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. Here we've got God being mentioned by David, and not once was he ever concerned if God was going to forgive their iniquities, whether God could heal their diseases or would heal their diseases, whether, whether God actually would redeem their life in any way. It was always a matter of fact because he knew how God would respond underneath a covenant that is different than the one we have today. Now remember, we began to look at the different things that Jesus did. We talked about the four miracles that the Messiah would do. We talked about how they knew that when Messiah came that he would react in a certain way, thus proving that he was truly God. We talked about the woman with the issue of blood, why she was so confident to simply touch those corner of the hem of his garment. What about that? And that goes back to a verse in Malachi that she knew because of what the prophet had said and what was written down that the Messiah would come with healing in his wings. She knew that. So it wasn't whether like, I wonder if I touch this, if it'll actually work. She knew it would because God said that when Messiah comes, the son of righteousness, Malachi 4.2, he will come with healing in his wings. That was the hem of the garment. So she knew it. She was confident in it. So we look back and we began to look at the book of Exodus, looking at the, the Israelites coming out of Egypt, how they went in there uh, with, a, uh, with Joseph being there as a redeemer of sort, protecting them, getting them into a good place. That God had told Abraham, your people will be there for 430 years. And so as God brought them out, we looked at the ten plagues. Were those plagues uh, judgments on Egypt? No, they're on the gods of Egypt, very specific. We looked at the final, the death of the firstborn. 
And we looked at that, how that was against Pharaoh himself being another god. And yet Pharaoh releases him. They go out and we began to look at all these patterns that develop combining the Old Testament and the New Testament. And how God multiple times in Scripture says, I will put, not put on you all the plagues of Egypt. I will do as I led you by the hand out of Egypt. All the things hearkening back to the Exodus. That God had moved in their behalf, and yet the Mosaic Covenant that was set up was set up with promises. One of which is that I will put no disease on you. I will take away sickness from your midst. We read that multiple times. David writing this underneath of that uh, covenant, that he forgives your iniquities and he heals your diseases. And then we talked about Passover. How the Passover meal, the Passover lamb was so crucial. And that how God told Moses that when they get ready for this, that it's going to be the first of months for them. So let's look at this calendar one more time. I know I'm building this back up, but we've got to make sure everybody's on the same page. That he changed the month of Tishri, which was originally the first month, to the month of Nisan. And how on the 10th of the month, they'd have to take, over the, take in the Passover lamb. It'd have to be without spot, without blemish. It had to be perfect in every way. And for four days, they would examine that. And then on the 14th, at twilight, they would kill the lamb. They would catch the blood. And the only way that they would be spared from the angel of death is if they took that blood and applied it on the doorpost. They had to consume the lamb. They had to get leaven out of their house. There's this whole thing that's going on there. And how that very thing was a picture of what Jesus had done. This is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. This is the cup of redemption, the third cup, and the Passover supper. And so all of these things are pointing precursors. Jesus said, I have come to fulfill it. All going to what? The new covenant. That's the key here. Because everything with the book of Exodus brought into the old covenant. The Mosaic Covenant, the conditional covenant between God and Israel. All the laws, all the things that they were supposed to do was between God and Israel. If you will do this, you will be blessed. If you don't, you will be cursed. And they agreed to the terms and then they broke the terms. And then they broke them again and again and again and again. And yet, we see in Jeremiah 31 that there's a new covenant coming. The Israelites are in captivity here. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, is giving them hope. In verse 31, it says this, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For the Lord uh, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. This is the promise. Jeremiah is giving the people comfort that God is saying, Listen, there's a new covenant coming. They, the reason they were in captivity is because they had broken the covenant. They were supposed to have a land Sabbath. Every seventh year, they were supposed to allow the land to rest. They never did it. They were in Babylon for the exact amount of time to make up for the resting of the land. That's why in Jeremiah says that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, that I will hear them from heaven and I will heal their land. That's literally talking about healing the land. We like to use it in America, oh, if we would just pray and humble ourselves. That is true, but that's not what that verse is talking about. It is talking about the breaking of the covenant. 
So now there's a new covenant coming, and it's completely different, but you notice he's making a distinction. It's not just any covenant that it's not like. It is like the covenant that he made with them when he took them out of the land of Egypt. The Mosaic covenant, the covenant with a lot of blood and a lot of death. There's a lot of pain that goes with that. All a picture, all written down for our benefit. So there's a new covenant coming. One, writes the laws on our minds and on our hearts. We don't need a tablet of stone. We don't need a book written in because He put it in us. It's like we have a conscience. We see that same thing in Romans 1. That although they knew God, their foolish hearts were darkened in their futile thinking. And they worshiped the creation rather than the Creator. We see this all over the place. But this new covenant is the key. It's the new covenant that was in the blood of Christ. That the sacrificial lamb was given. Ezekiel 36 verse 22 says this, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nation, wherever you went, and I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nation shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments, and you will do them. So, this is the second part of it. Now, we know that we have a new covenant that's based on better promises, right? This better covenant. Why is it based on better promises? Because the covenant is no longer between man and God. It is now between Father and Son on the behalf of all people. So, the reason God did this is because the Israelites had profaned His name. Whose namesake was it for? It was for His namesake. Because they were God's representative. They were to be a beacon of light to all nations to see that this is Yahweh, the one true God. When God brought them out of Egypt, He was showing power over all the gods of Egypt. Showing that He is truly the God of gods in Psalm 82. We see this all over the place and yet the Israelites constantly blasphemed His name. Drug His name through the mud. They were constantly in judgment. All is a part of that covenant. But when Jesus showed up, John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's not colorful language. That's who He was. For this reason, He was born. He was the Passover Lamb. As He's getting ready to go to the cross, He's eating that meal with them. He said, this is the covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. When He goes to Gethsemane and He's praying, Lord, take this cup from me. The cup of redemption. The third cup and the meal. Take it from me. But He knew it had to be done. And we always focus all our attention there. Because it is the blood of the Lamb that makes us white as snow. We've got songs written about it. We could sing them all day long, right? But the thing is, is that we've missed something. We've missed the body. You see, he says before that, that this is my body which is broken for you. Why did the body need to be broken? Why is it broken for us? We know that he did this in fulfillment of Passover because it tells us that. So we know that he was waiting for Passover because he had to fulfill Passover. And we know how he did that. We know how he fulfilled unleavened bread. We know how he, un he fulfilled first fruits, right? When he was put in the grave and with his resurrection, we know that Pentecost has been fulfilled. The giving of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. We know that when he returns, he'll fulfill those fall feasts. 
So what is it about his body? Why does he make a distinction there? Because the bread itself has nothing to do specifically with the redemption of the Israelites. It was important, but it in itself had nothing to do with it. We talked about the matzah and how it had to be striped and how it had to be uh, completely without leaven. They had to have no leaven in the home. There is a picture that's going on there. But why did Jesus say that? So we need to look at this, and we're going to begin to look at this a little deeper. As I showed you last week, as we read in Psalm 103, what I've told you guys is if we look at the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Bible that Jesus would have read, that the apostles would have read, we can begin to pick up on trends using the words in the Old Testament because it's the same Greek that is used in the writing of the New. And so we can watch them correspond with one another. And what I showed you is that who heals all your diseases in Psalm 103 is the exact same one that is used in Isaiah 53 that is also used in 2 Peter 2 that's used everywhere. It's the same word. It was an expectation that they had for him. So, as we get into this today, we're going to read Isaiah 52 and 53 again, and we're going to begin to look at this from a little bit different angle, because we need to understand this. Isaiah 52 and 53 is of, uh, of a passage of Scripture that which the Jewish people don't read very often. The rabbis tell them not to read it. They probably tell them it was written by somebody not named Isaiah. I don't know. But the reason they don't do it is because it sounds too much like Jesus, and we can't have that. So let's look at this. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled to be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For, there, or for what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And as a root out of dry ground, he has no form of comeliness. And when they see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. I'm going to stop there for a minute. Because what we need to understand is that people were not drawn to Jesus for his good looks. Okay, I have the opposite problem. It's just my cross to bear. But why is that in there? Now think about this for a minute. When the nation of Israel was set up, who was in charge of them? It was God. God was their king. And what did they do? They demanded a king for themselves. So they picked Saul. And why does it say? Because he was, he was a good-looking cat. Right? I think I may be related to him. I don't know. It's possible. Right? But they picked the wrong king because he looked the part. You see, they were going to have a king eventually. We see it in Genesis 49, that they would have one. Ultimately, we see David come into play here. But they wanted one so bad that they went after the wrong guy because he looked the part. But that's not the case here. You see, people weren't drawn to him because of his beauty. They were drawn to him because he contained the truth. Let's go on. Verse 3. He is despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And he was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. 
because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. And when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is telling us all about Jesus, all about the Messiah, that when He comes, this is what He's going to do. And this is where we get the idea of the penal substitutionary atonement, where Jesus took the sin of many, suffered the just justice given by God, and therefore now we can be redeemed. Now, I know this is not a popular theory right now in the church that they, can't, they keep saying that like God did not kill His Son. A father would never do that. A loving God would never bring judgment upon His own but yet that's exactly what it just said, that it pleased God to bruise him. You see, he carried the sin of many. And that's so important that we understand that. We understand that in, in reference to the cross, and we understand the necessity of the resurrection, because Paul says that if Jesus didn't come back from the grave, then our faith is all for naught. So, as we get into this today, I want to focus our attention today on chapter, or verse 4 and verse 5 in Isaiah 53. Because it says this, Surely He has borne our griefs, and He's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions, and He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. And what does that mean? Because here's where the debate comes in. He says, by His stripes we are healed. Healed from what? Well, the whole verse here, the whole chapter is talking about really one thing. The redemption of mankind. Thus, by default, by His stripes we are healed. Must be talking about spiritually healed. Right? Has to be. Yeah, y'all are catching on. You, you know I'm setting you up. <laughs> See, think about this. Was your spirit, if this is true, was your spirit healed or given life? You were spiritually dead. You don't heal dead things. You resurrect them. See, just thinking that through, taking it to the end point, that doesn't make sense to me. That doesn't mean it's wrong. There's a lot of things that don't make sense to me. You ever done taxes? None of that makes sense to me either. That's a whole other story. So what is he talking about here? Well, there's a couple of different things that we're going to focus our attentions on. First thing here, it says in verse 4, He has borne our griefs and He's carried our sorrows. Now, what does it mean for somebody to bear something? Or, in this case, it says the word born. Not to be born. We know what that means. Okay, But what does that mean? Well, when we look at this, we can think about this. That a mother bears the soul of a child. We talk about how, how when the child hurts, the mom hurts. Does the dad hurt? No. Suck it up. You'll be fine. But mom feels that pain. Like when my children needed shots, my wife would sometimes leave the room because it hurt her. For me, I'm like, give them another one. They deserve it. They've kept me up all night. So there's a difference there, right? Like mom feels the pain. Dad tells him to shut up. I mean, it's just the truth. I mean, my son was sprinting down the hallway. I don't know if you saw this. Maybe some of you did. As he came to turn the corner, 
He loses his feet, slips out. He biffs it hardcore. This is Isaac, not Josiah. Okay? I saw two women turn around and look and had that, oh, he's okay. And I'm like, get up, you're fine. And then I looked at him, it's like, maybe, maybe, just maybe, and I'm no expert here, but if you left your shoes on, that wouldn't happen. Because he hates shoes. He takes them off every moment he gets an opportunity. I can't tell you how many times we've been here late at night hunting for his shoes because somewhere in this building he took them off and for whatever reason there'd be one in this room and one on the other side of the building. I don't understand that. But I'm like, get up, you're fine. Did I bear his pain? No, I laughed at him. What a good dad does. So what is this talking about here? Well, let's break this down here because we need to understand this. He's borne our griefs. So what does borne mean? Well, this comes from the Hebrew word nasah. These are all the different meanings that we can have for this word. So it's always lovely they can have this. But one thing to remember is that, as you can see, it's very short. They don't have vowels. They don't have anything like that. But it carries multiple meanings. To take up, armor bear, took, raised. Here it says to carry, to lift, to lift up, to raise, bear, lifting, carrying, takes. I think you guys get it. We see this used in a couple of different places. In Leviticus chapter 5, verse 1. If a person sins in hearing the utterance of an oath and his witness, whether he has seen or known of the matter, if he does not tell it, he bears guilt. It's the same verse. You carry the guilt. If you don't open your mouth and you know about it, you are just as guilty as the one who did it. That's essentially what's being said there. So you're bearing the guilt. Okay? We understand that. Pretty simple, not complicated. In Isaiah 53, verse 12, it says this, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressor, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Okay? What's it talking about? What did he bear here? He carried the sin of many. That's what it means. So, what was born? Sins, right? We see that. It tells us that right there. He bore the sin of many. So that's one of the things that he bore. And when did he do that? Well, we know when he did that. He did it on the cross. So we see that. It's pretty clear. I don't think anybody struggled with this. I don't think anybody needed me to break down the Hebrew in it, right? Pretty self-explanatory. But what about the next part? And he carried our sorrows, okay? So here we've got the word carried. What does it mean to carry something? Well, this comes from the Hebrew word sabal, and it actually means to bear something as a penalty or chastisement. Now, we use the word carry. Here's a couple different ways you can see it. You can see it says burden, laden, bear, carry, to carry, to support. We use the word carry a, little, a lot of different ways in the English. You might be carrying a few extra pounds. You might be carrying an extra load. We use it, uh, you know, they're carrying a lot of grief right now. We see all this kind of stuff. But here, it's very specific. It's to bear something as a penalty. To bear something as chastisement. We see this used in Lamentations chapter 5, verse 7. Our fathers sinned and are no more, but we bear their iniquities. What's it talking about in Lamentation? Well, it is talking about because of the sins of the Father, they are having to carry out the punishment. What punishment are we talking about? It's always talking about them being exiled. They're not in the land. So we see this here. We also see it in Isaiah 53, verse 11. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. This is the same word. 
Sabal. So you could almost use these interchangeably, but the one thing that we notice here specifically is this is primarily talking about punishment. If we have a loving God who is just, then justice must be served or He's not loving, He's showing favor. If you show favoritism, you're not being fair and thus you are not being loving. If a child breaks the rules, are you loving by letting them off the hook? No, of course not. You have to. You have to. So this is what we're talking about here. That He has borne our griefs and He's carried our sorrows. He's carried our punishment. He's borne our sins. Great. So what are we talking about? We must be talking about spiritual healing. That we are now set free. We are now redeemed. We are now the righteous. But there's more to it than that because it uses specific words. So let's look at verse 4 and 5 again here. I think I've got it up here. He has borne our griefs and He's carried our sorrows. What about the word griefs? Well, what does griefs mean? I know what some of you are thinking. You got griefs, right? I could gripe about something all day long. It might be the stock market. It might be politics. It might be the levy system. It could be how they operate the dam up north, right Stan? Could be that. Here, football season starts in a couple weeks. You're going to hear a lot of griping. Probably from me. I mean, it's just, this is what we do. Our griefs, but what does griefs mean? Well, let's look at the definition here. Here's the definition for the word griefs. A deep mental anguish as that arising from bereavement or an instance of this. A source of cause or cause of deep mental anguish. Annoyance or frustration or an instance of this. Trouble or difficulty or an instance of this. I don't know why they put the instance of this as if we didn't know that part, but... Well, so what do we see? Mental anguish is grief. You know, something, somebody dies and we're sad. We're grieving for them. Uh, something that's caused some deep mental anguish. Maybe it was how you were brought up. Maybe you're saddened by the state of affairs that are going on. Maybe you look at the country and you're like, boy, I sure wish things were going better. And it grieves you deeply. That you're moved with compassion in some way. It could be any of these different things. And that is what grief means here in English. When we see that word and we read that word, we think of things such as that. But is that what the word means in Hebrew? Because really, that's what matters. So let's look at this. He has borne our griefs. Here's the word. Here's what it means in Hebrew. It's the word holy, H-O-L-I. Disease, sickness, infirmity, affliction, malady, sickbed, illness, injury. Now if we put that in there with verse 4, he has borne our what? Our sickness. Now let's look at this in a couple different places. Same word used. Isaiah 38 verse 9. This is the writing of Hezekiah king of Judah. When he had been sick and he had recovered from his sickness. Holy. First Kings 17, 17. Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick and his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. So it says that he has borne our sickness on his body. Now that's interesting to me. Very interesting to me. Because again, the body of the lamb had to be perfect. We know that Jesus was striped 39 times. And it says, by His stripes, we are healed. There's something there about the breaking of the body. But now we see that in His body, that He carried, that He carried our sins, He bore them, but it says He also bore our sickness. 
That's something you don't hear very often, is it? Well, let's look at this again. Verse 4 and 5, we're going to look at this one more time. Because there's another part. Surely he has borne our griefs. We could say sickness there. It's the same word. And he's carried our sorrows. Well, what does sorrows mean? Well, you know what that is. I'm sad. Right? I'm sorrowful. Something happened. That I'm sad. Again, I know I talk a big game before football season starts, but let's be honest, for the last 15 years, it beats the life out of me pretty quick. Okay? I'm sorrowful. But what does that mean in Hebrew? Well, here it is. It's the Hebrew word makab. It's pain, pain and suffering. My thing quit working. There it goes. Pain, grief. If you break this down a little further, in other words, what the root of the word means, this is what it, what it means. Hardship, agony, pain, spasm, hurt, strenuous work, shaking, trembling, pain, suffering, labor pains, fear and pain, to be in pain, to cause pain, to be in labor, to rise, to tremble, to bring forth. The root word of it literally means pain. Where do we see this used? Well, in Jeremiah 51, verse 8, Babylon has suddenly fallen and been destroyed. Wail for her, take balm for her macabre. Perhaps she may be healed. It's the pain. So he bore our sins, he bore our sickness, and he carried our, our pains. That's what the word means. So what does that have to do with anything? Well, Remember that this is written to a certain people at a certain time. And there was a promise in that, that it was a promise of the Messiah coming and what he would do. The suffering servant. What was he suffering for? According to Isaiah, he was suffering for our sins and our sickness, and he carried our pains and our punishment. And we would agree with two of those words, no problem, right? He took away our sins, and he took away our punishment. But those last two we struggle with. Well, Let's look at the works of Jesus just for a minute, because we're almost done here. In Acts 10, chapter, or chapter 10, verse 36, it says, The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with Him. So what was it that Jesus was doing? Because remember, Jesus fulfills Passover. He also fulfills the words of the prophets. You see that in John where he's constantly talking about, he said this, and we see it in Matthew, that he might fulfill, that he might fulfill, that he might fulfill. He said, I want to eat this Passover with you, that the word of the Lord be fulfilled. I mean, he says it time and time again. And so he came, and he was doing good, and he was healing all who were pressed by the devil. Not some. It was open for everybody. Did everybody take advantage of it? Of course not. But many did. That was the works that he was doing. So, let's look at this through the Gospels. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. So what did he do? He taught, he preached, and he healed. It was a threefold mission. He'd go in there and he would teach in their synagogues. Their version of church, they would meet every Sabbath. They would come together, there'd be a reading of the scrolls. They would have a time where they would stand up and he were allowed to arbitrate back and forth and he would stand up and he would teach from the scriptures of what was going on. And then he would preach or he would proclaim the kingdom of God is at hand. He's standing here. And then what else did he do? He healed all who were sick. 
We see it also in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. You see, there's a pattern that Jesus would do. He would go in and he would teach. He would go in and he would proclaim. And he would go in and he would heal. We watched that pattern followed as Jesus sent out the 70. He said, listen, go out there. I want you to teach. I want you to preach. I want you to heal. They come back. They're like, man, even the demons obey us. They were shocked. They couldn't believe it. It was so shocking to them. This was the work that Jesus did. Why did He do it? Why was He doing it in this pattern? Because He was fulfilling what Isaiah wrote. How do we know that Jesus was fulfilling that? Well, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 14. Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, He saw His wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she arose and served Him. When evening had come, they brought to Him many who were demon-possessed. He cast out the spirits with the word, and He healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He Himself took our infirmities and He bore our sicknesses. You see, Matthew is telling us exactly what Jesus did. That He was teaching and He was preaching and people brought to Him the demon-possessed and He cast them out. And He healed everybody who was sick. But why did He do it? So that He could fulfill the verse that we just read. It tells us that He Himself, He took our infirmities and He bore our sicknesses. You see, pain, sickness, it's all the same thing. Jesus came to do this. Matthew 8 is a commentary on Isaiah 53. So why did we change it? You should read what commentators say to explain this away. That this was a picture of spiritual stuff that was going on. But yet it says that He healed those who were all sick. You see, everything that he did was a predictable pattern. He did it to fulfill the words of Isaiah. Every bit of it. Now, if we read Matthew chapter 8, we also read in in 2 Peter 2 where he says that by his stripes we are healed. We've got Isaiah 53, and we see verse 4 that says that he carried and he bore. And then verse 5 that says, by his stripes we are healed. It's making a connection to the body of Christ being carrying this stuff For our benefit. Is there any doubt of what Matthew thought of Isaiah 53? What was he carrying? What was he bearing? Our infirmities and our sickness. That still doesn't answer the question, is what's the significance in the body? It answers the why and the what. But it doesn't answer, it said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You see, there was an expectation of the Jewish people, the followers of Christ, to do this breaking of bread frequently. But why? What is so significant about it? You need to come back next week and I'll tell you. You see, we've we've got to get this. We've got to understand this. I could tell you today, but you'd be here till next Sunday. We need to we need to understand exactly what Scripture says, guys. Matthew's commentary on this is telling us exactly what he came to board. The reason we don't believe it is because we've been taught something wrong. Scripture interprets Scripture. 